You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, that was interesting. Let's just start. Uh, does anybody have a question or comment for our authors based on the reading? The guy, the weird-looking guy over there by the door. The question is, are any of the characters from the first two books going to uh, continue into the third, or have they all been resigned to the dustbin of history? I think um, all the li- all, I think just about every single living character uh, will make at least a cameo in the new book. I think this will be the last book set in this universe, so I'm, I'm trying to sort of I'm trying to wrap it all up and, 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 and close all the loops um, and, and trot everybody out for a curtain call. So you're one of these authors who calls his meanderings a universe. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you call it? <laughs> a world. <laughs> no, I, I was kidding, but, <laughs> obviously. Nobody has a question about the naked woman with a knife on the roof of the... I, I just wanted to say that I was struck with uh, how distinctive both of your voices are in, in the readings. That you are two very distinct writers, and both have are really skillful, and it, it was fun to listen to you. But how distinct your voices were is, is what I came away with. Interesting. Do you mean the literary voice or the actual reading voice? That's a serious question. Yeah. Literary voice. I mean, it's like you have to write for a while to develop one of those. And it's both of yours are just so clear. It's just really nice. Thank you. I have to say that that, as an author, I always, I, whenever I read a book, I want to come away after having read the book thinking, I wish I'd written that. That means that not that not that I'm envious, it's just that that was such a good book, I wish I'd had that idea. And I enjoyed it so much, I wish I would have done that. And sitting here listening to Lev read, I'm like, God, he reads so well. <laughs> like, God, I suck. So uh, it's, just, it's just one of those things is, you know, some, it's, it's often, it's easy to compare, but they are very different styles. But, but it was, it was, oh, thank you. <laughs> but no, I, I, I enjoyed, it's fun to, to listen to somebody else read as well, so. <laughs> yeah, what happened to the cards over there? He does read well. Did you notice that you couldn't even tell when he had quit reading and was just kind of adding stuff? You know, seamless, it, was, it was a seamless transition. It was seam, a seamless transition, absolutely. Yes, please. The guy behind. Right, yeah, please. Uh, so I have a question for uh, uh, Lev Grossman. Um, you mentioned that you were going to write a book about the Holocaust, and I discovered your criticism, actually, because. Uh, Found a review you did a book that I'd given up on, and it inspired me to get back at it. And I'm really glad I did, which was uh, 2666. Mm. Um, and uh, sort of based on reading your criticism after that, now I, I want to read fiction. Uh, when I'm done with 2666, <laughs> yeah. um, how's the? My question is, what? How's the 1,000 words a day going? Oh, this is a, it. This was a, a new regime that I put myself on approximately two and a half weeks ago, uh, whereby I would write a thousand words a day. I used to be sort of, uh, uh, well, I was, I was a bit of a, of a binger. I would let it go for three, four days or a week, and then you know, just do five or six hours. Um, I decided to sort of try to normalize it and uh, uh, do a thousand words a day. Um, and it, it, initially, I thought, well, this is, you know, you know you can't tame my muse, you know, just to produce a set number every day. It seemed like sort of vaguely industrial. 
Um, uh, but I'm really starting to enjoy it, if only because I can, if I get up in the morning and do a thousand words, I can spend, I can, for the rest of the day, I can feel, you know, vaguely fulfilled and um, self-important, uh, which causes me to be less of an asshole to everybody else around <laughs> me, where I'm, I don't have to be worrying about my book all the time, because I did, I did my thing, I did my quota. Uh, for the, have you ever tried that? A thousand words a day? Yeah, well, that's what I try to do when I'm working on a project. And yeah. I'm, right now, I'm, I'm trying to do a thousand to fifteen hundred because I do have a deadline. And it's the first time I've ever written under a deadline where mm -hmm. actually they've paid me already. Right, right. <laughs> and I haven't written the book. All of my other books were done. And so normally, as you mentioned, a binge writer, but I wouldn't necessarily go three or four days or, or a week. Sometimes I would go three or four months and not really write because mm -hmm. I just. I was doing other things, and then I would start writing. But when I work on a project, I try to have that that set of a thousand words a day. You know, you get four or five pages a day, and, and you're done in you know in three months. I mean, I find when you start a novel, the the idea of, of finishing it seems literally impossible. Like there is some physical law that is that will prevent you from ever ever finishing this project. Um, but bizarrely, you know, if you chip away at it. Uh, I mean, if you wrote a thousand words a day for a year, that's approximately three hundred sixty-five thousand words. That's an insane <laughs> number of words. Magician's books are one hundred forty-five thousand words each. Uh, you could do two of them a year. Anyway, I could do four. Mine are eighty thousand, so that's easy. Please. So, uh, speaking of not being an asshole to people, uh, Quentin. <laughs> Hang on, I just need a drink. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> One of the reasons I love the Magician's books and I recommend them to people is particularly in the first one, um, the only way you can possibly not hate Quentin is if you force yourself to empathize with him, <laughs> which I think is wonderful. Uh, and I'm wondering at this point, I don't want to be too spoilery, but he, I feel like he has guilt about Alice and Julia and it's just all piling on and I'm just wondering, is there ever going to be a moment where like, he's going to have to sit back and kind of deal with all of this shit. Because, like, you talk about all of your characters being clinically depressed, and again, that's part of why I like it. Um, <laughs> and I feel like eventually there's going to be a moment that I feel like he's done such a good job of being angsty, right. but not actually facing anything. I, 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 would, I, would, I would actually argue that, that the, the, the last chapter of The Magician King was that moment, was the turning of the, of the corner. Um, uh, I hope that is true because I I cannot stand to hang out with him for you know one more book if he isn't making a little bit of you know progress in therapy. Uh, I I I I hoped um, uh, that that would be that would be his moment. And in fact, the Quentin uh, who appears in um, uh, in the third book is recognizably the same Quentin, but a but a really a transformed person. Uh, and I made a point of, of starting with, uh, starting from Plum's point of view, a completely new point of view, um, and you know we'll sort of vector in on Quentin from a very odd angle. We'll sort of meet him at first, sort of by chance, as if he's a minor character, and then sort of uh, we'll sort of get to know him all over again um, because I, the trauma that he suffered at the Magician King um, uh, really altered him, and it was about time. Really, I mean, he was kind of ready breakthrough. The question was, does Quentin ever become self-reflective and somewhat improved, right? That was, I was meant to say the question over again. Yeah, we okay. should try and say yeah, the question. We, we have to do that for this directional things for a podcast, so we're not, if we don't we're say not there's neurotic. A, there's a bean that shoots <laughs> and, and And we don't have shortage, we don't have ADD, so um, Good that's question. why we're doing that. Please. Absolutely, it's 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 uh, it's. Oh, <laughs> right. Um, the the kids who go to to break bills, they tend to get very 
sort of just necessarily kind of estranged from their parents because they're really living in a different world from their parents and the distance it opens up between them is you know uh, uh, almost unbreachable and and you notice that Quentin's parents only ever make very token cameos. It's the model, more or less, is the Peanuts cartoons, where they just would go wah 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 wah, and you never actually saw them. Uh, but uh, that particular issue uh, has always has been hanging fire for me for the whole series, um, and I, in a in a forceful and hopefully dramatic way, um, that stuff is going to come home to roost in, in the new book and quite early on in the book. Please. Um, well, something I, I always theorize is that something in Narnia pissed you off. When, and so then you, because I don't know, I think like Susan and Lucy are frumpy bitches. And they, you know, that's not how children behave. It just isn't. I'm just, I'm wondering if that's kind of true that you were inspired by the unrealistic attitudes of books like Narnia, and, or if I'm completely off base. No, you're, you're definitely not off base. I mean, I, I, um, I love the Narnia books, and I read them. I read them when I was eight, I would guess, um, and they were, you know, they were the, the 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 primal reading experience for me. They were the model that every other great reading experience I've had has, I've ever had has followed. Um, that sense of, of crossing over into a into a fictional world and inhabiting it, and uh, never wanting to leave until some magic line says you have to go home. Uh, but yeah, um, uh, I did develop a lot of, you know, almost sort of weirdly kind of Oedipal anger towards towards C.S. Lewis. And I think, you know, one of the things that sort of snapped in me that and caused me to write um, The Magicians, which I didn't start until I was 35, was that my life, my uh, sort of personal and professional life had, would, had would just, I was just having real problems. And uh, I, I, I wanted to think about and talk about how woefully unprepared I was for for the realities of adult life, um, and you know I, I have a lot of love for the for the Narnia books as well. You know you'll 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 hear in um, uh, you, you'll see Philip Pullman uh, who wrote the great His Dark Materials trilogy. He'll give interviews about Lewis, and I actually met him once, and we talked about this. He loathes C.S. Lewis. He really he will he he gets angry about it, and he will say the <laughs> most vicious things about C.S. Lewis. Um, I, my, my attitude with Lewis is, is, is much more complicated because um, I have really great love for his books as well. But yeah, um, you know, the attitudes toward uh, sexuality in the books, uh, this fetishization of uh, childhood innocence, um, the capriciousness of this god who runs this world and uh, is so willing to let his, um, uh, its inhabitants suffer uh, when he has the power to do something about it. Uh, I got... Uh, very angry about that stuff, and um, uh, I felt like I needed to correct it. One of the first things I wrote in the file that I ended up that ended up being the magicians is, um, uh, you know, what if people got to go to Narnia and and they didn't have to leave at the end? That was something I wanted to know the answer to. So the question was, uh, is your book a vicious attack on C.S. Lewis? <laughs> um, okay, please. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, I can't remember the title of it, but the book that you wrote just before The Magicians was mm. one that I read. What is it? Codex. Codex, yeah. right. And, and I remember feeling like, oh, you know, this isn't quite right. And then you came out and said that was what, what, how you felt about it, too, when you finally found uh, what you really needed to do. Mm. So uh, is it okay for us to think that maybe that is something that that we can all go through, first write the book that isn't quite right, and then, <laughs> and then because it was kind of, you know, I, I had mixed feelings about it, because mm -hmm. in a way, it started out so beautifully, and then nothing magical happened. Yeah. And that was what was wrong to me. Yeah, well, I, I would, you know, I don't advise anybody to do it that way, to write a sort of semi-crap book and then write a good book. Just go straight to the good book if you can. Um, I think it took me an unusually long time to, to, to find it, anything that I could identify as a fictional voice. Um, it took me, what, 15, 20 years? Uh, I mean, I, I would go around saying, there's uh, this whole thing about finding your voice, it's a myth. I didn't believe in it. 
Uh, and yet, you know, uh, when I began to write uh, The Magicians, um, it, was, it was completely different. It was as if I'd been writing in some foreign language that I, you know, had had a couple years of in college and sort of vaguely grasped. Suddenly I was writing something in, in, in my mother tongue and it was just, everything just sort of broke <laughs> loose. Well, they always say that every every author has, and of course now you have computers, so you don't really have your manuscript under your bed or in your closet. Every author has you know, at least two or three manuscripts, books that are never going to get published, because you do. You have to write. You have to write stuff that doesn't necessarily work before you can write did, the stuff that does. Did you, do you have do you have novels under your bed? Yes, I have three. <laughs> I have three, and and with the voice thing, when I started writing Breathers, which was you know, the dark comedy and social satire from first-person point of view, that's when I found my voice. And what happened? What, what, what happened in your life that made that possible? Uh, I realized I wasn't enjoying writing. Mm -hmm. I wasn't enjoying doing the straight supernatural horror. And so I spent, I actually had the opportunity to have both my second and third books published by small press. Mm -hmm. And as I was rewriting them, uh, I wasn't having any fun. And I spent several months and I eventually said I can't give these to you because I can't get the rewrites done and I felt like I let an opportunity pass by and so for the next four months at the end of 2002 I think it was 2001 uh, I just I, I sat there for two hours every morning in front of my computer and 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 just wasn't enjoying it I've heard that so many times I've heard that so many times that story I remember talking to Victor Laval about this uh, who wrote a great novel called Big Machine yeah, and that was his third that. book and he had written two rather austere literary works before that, and he had stopped enjoying writing completely. And he sat down and thought, well, what, what, what would it take for me to enjoy writing again? Um, and his answer was, I need to write a book with a monster in it. <laughs> and his agent said, you mean a psychological monster, a metaphorical monster? And he said, no, no, a real live monster. And that's what he did, and that was his breakthrough. Interesting. Uh, we have an old pro in the back, Michael. I want to get back to the microphone. We all do. I want to commend you on a really wonderful book. Because that's it. You start reading. There's a naked woman on the roof with a knife and she's chasing me. Now let me tell you about myself. And I've got a hundred pages. The reader is going to keep turning regardless of what's happening because he wants to find out what's that's wonderful. I really commend you. Well, thank you. <laughs> anyway, it's actually interesting because that opening chapter, at least the, the bones of the opening chapter, was a writing exercise in a writing group that I did where it was just whatever you came up with. It was, it was to, to get you to just write with, you know, free thinking and not worry about what was on the page. And I said, well, just whatever first thought comes into your head, write that down and then write a scene from there. And the first thought that came into my head was, it's my understanding that naked women don't generally tend to carry knives. I don't know where it came from, <laughs> but it was just there. So I, went, I wrote this scene that takes place on the roof of a hotel. It was a nameless hotel. I don't even know if it was San Francisco. It probably was. I think I called it the Windsor Hotel. I don't know why, but I, there, is, there is a Windsor in San Francisco, but it wasn't tall enough for eventually when I, I came up with. I, I think the rest of your <laughs> so did you pass uh, what grade did you get on the exercise oh well, there was no grading <laughs> it was just to get us to write but it was just you know two pages and I didn't really do anything with it for probably a year and I'd written a short story about luck poachers in 2004 that was um, uh, inspired by a, a 2002 film called Intacto Spanish film called Intacto so if you've never seen it it's about luck Com luck as a commodity, but it, 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 even though it has luck, a luck poacher in it or somebody who has the ability to steal luck, they focus more on uh, a, a thriller aspect of it where people who possess large quantities of good luck engage in games of high-stake chance and the loser ends up losing, having to give the luck to the other one. And I like this, this, the idea of the luck poaching and, and luck as a commodity was compelling to me. So I wrote the short story in 2004. And then I ended up marrying these two concepts, ended up with the detective angle and the noir aspect, and, and that's how I came up with this. So, and it takes place, as it mentions, it takes place all in one day, which was actually in about 14 hours. So it's, 
It starts out on the roof, and you find out how he got there. And of course, and I don't know. I don't know if we discussed this. You don't outline, do you? I do actually. Okay, do so outline. you do outline, yeah. and, and I and I don't. I don't outline. I have no idea how my books are going to to end. So I I knew he was started out on the roof of the hotel, but I had no idea how he got back there. So I had to figure out how he got onto the roof of the hotel. So that's what the the story is about: is what series of events occurred to get him onto the roof of the hotel. So. So you don't know how they're going to end, but you know the date you have to turn them in. <laughs> now I do. First, my first three books I'd written without a deadline. Please. I'm, I'm just wondering, Lev, since you write an outline, do you still find yourself, do you, do you ever get, you know, writer's block kind of thing and you don't know what's happening? Or does that, because you have that, are you, is it much easier to kind of write? I need it. I'm a real, I, I'm, I'm a real panicker, you know. At the keyboard, sitting there, it's really it's it's easy for me to, to to lock up and say, you know, Jesus Christ, this is all just you know, it's completely blown. You know, I've forgotten how to do this, and I'm never going to remember. <laughs> uh, and then I have a little file on my uh, on my um, uh, in the folder where I, I keep the fiction I'm working on, and it is very reassuringly named Master Outline. <laughs> I just I double click on that, and it just sort of restores me to it's like my little sort of GPS, and it tells me where I am in the novel. And, What's coming next, and why the hell, you know, I I, I wrote the stuff that uh, that came before. Uh, I need it. It's like a little, um, I don't know. Uh, it's it's almost like a good luck charm, and I often depart from it. I mean, I, I look at it and think, right, well, that's interesting, but it's not quite right. But I become calm after I look at my outline. And <laughs> that's what I need it for. Please. So I want to know about uh, your your both your editing processes. You know, you talked about your your recent mass production of words. Uh -huh. <laughs> I don't know if the editing process necessarily is is easier. Uh, it depends on each book. Every time, all three of the books I've written, I give to a writers group uh, that I'm in, a different writers group than the one that where we did the the exercise, and we critique each other's novels. There's about five or six of us in the group. And every time I've given my books, one of my books to them, they I've thought, okay, well, this is this is good. I'll get the critique from them, and then I'll make the edits. And they give me the edits, and I go, ah, oh, I got it. I have to completely rewrite this. How am I going to fix these things? I don't know how to fix these things. And then there comes a point the first time you're doing it when you realize, well, I, I created this world or universe, depending on, on <laughs> how big your ego is. Uh, <laughs> or kidding. how small your vision. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I call it universe, too. So I'm a writer. I have a big ego. Uh, and we're also self-deprecating because we have such big egos, so we have to bring ourselves down. Um, and so I, I realized I'm, I created this universe, so I should be able to fix whatever problem is in here, so long as I stay within the rules that I've created. And so when in my second book, and I, I gave it to my writers group, and they came back and they had a lot of other things that needed to be fixed, I had the confidence that I'd done it in my first one. I thought, okay, well, I can do this. And then the same thing with my third book. I had things I had to fix, things that, you know, and, and eventually that's, you write the story, at least this is my perspective, you write the story in the first draft and maybe, you know, in the light edits, but when you really go back and start editing it, that's when you're writing the book. That's when you find things you're like, wow, I set this up really well and I didn't even know I did it. <laughs> you know, and, and you come up with these things and you realize as you start writing, you're like, oh, well, this makes a whole lot of sense to, to sort of add on here or take this out and, and shift around where it makes more sense. It just becomes, the book comes together then. And, and it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's it's fun, but it's it's enjoyable to see it take more shape because you can stand back and sort of take a look at it and have a, have all these other thoughts that came in. So, so that's my answer to the editing process. Um, right. Well, um, I don't know what to say about it. My my first drafts are 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 um, my first drafts are really really terrible. <laughs> like they we if if you saw a first draft of mine, it would just. It, we it, just heard one. <laughs> that's, that's not even a first draft. A first first draft reads like, like it's like a junior high person wrote it. I mean, it really, it's like a non-writer, semi-literate person wrote it. They're so terrible. It's amazing. I look at them and think, my, 
my God, um, what a fraud I'm perpetrating on the world. Uh, and then, you know, the, but the funny thing about, about, um, uh, about, you know, editing, everybody knows a good book when they read it. Everybody recognizes a good book when they read it. Um, that's something everybody can do. And you just, you try and look at your book from the outside and, and, and see what's missing. Um, and in my case, it's grammar and spelling. Uh, um, and also, like, a, the feelings are all over the place. I mean, people are in, this, in, are in scenes but reacting all wrong to what's going on around them. I mean, just horrible, terrible things happen. And then you slowly sort of, um, yeah, you, so you, you work it over. I have a, a group of, uh, not a writer's group, but a, group, a set of um, beta readers uh, who I send the book out to probably 20 of them. A lot of whom are people who, who wrote me after The Magicians came out, and their readings of the book were so smart and interesting. Um, uh, I, I, I forced them into indentured service <laughs> um, for no pay or credit. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, and uh, they, 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 they go over, um, they read through the books early and um, tell me what they think of them. And that do helps you, a lot. Do you at least thank them in your acknowledgments? I don't, <laughs> I don't have acknowledgments. Okay, well, there you go. That's yeah, a nice way so, to get out of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. no, it's, I, I, I need some way to properly acknowledge them. You just did. Are they here? Yeah. <laughs> no, here. No. At least we know they exist now. Please. Um, so I'm really excited to say that in the fall, um, I'm a high school teacher, and in the fall I'm going to be offering the first creative writing class at my school. Mm. Um, I'm super thrilled. Uh, I got a piece of excellent writing advice from one of my friends who is, like you illustrious folk, a published author, and he said, write what you fear, which I think is probably one of the best pieces of writing advice I've ever gotten. Um, and I feel like that kind of sums up when I sit down at my own keyboard and I'm like, I'm going to write now. I'm scared shitless, mm -hmm. so I write. <laughs> um, but I want to give, I'm going to have, you know, 10th through 12th graders. I want to give them something succinct and useful. And I'm wondering, when you guys sit down at your keyboards, naked women with knives, fucking terrifying. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if one were coming at me, I'd be scared. Uh, but, like, when you guys sit down and you're thinking about starting like you need more than just a nebulous like I think I'm going to write a novel now mm. uh, you need something there with you and I'm just wondering what is sort of like a guiding green light at the end of the dock kind of focus for you I'll let you go first <laughs> <laughs> what was the question <laughs> the question was is there a green light at the end of your dock <laughs> Boy, that can be taken so many ways. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I want to say two things about that. One, I mean, it's, it, yes is the answer, but it's hard to talk about it in a more articulate way. I mean, um, you know, you have a sense that there's, there's some book out there that ought to be written. It's almost as if you read it, you know, eight years ago, and you can have a vague sense of what it was like. Um, uh, and you loved it so much. And, uh, you know, you're just trying to bring back what it was. Uh, what it was, uh, and I often I often write toward that, you know, this sort of um, book that's it's in the future, but it feels as though you've read it already, and you're just you're just trying to get it down. And what you get down is this horrible, grisly, grotesque parody of what you're actually aiming at. Um, but uh, still, it's it's you know, it's it's better than nothing. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I have a green lighted in a tunnel, and I don't even know a naked woman holding a knife. Well, in, in one way it would be kind of fun, but in the other way probably not. Uh, that I don't necessarily write what I fear, not that I'm aware of. Maybe there's some Freudian thing in the back of my head that I'm writing what I fear. But the, the idea just comes, I, I get an idea for to start something, and, and like you said, it's very daunting to think that I have to finish this, and, and I don't, and since I don't know for sure how it's going to end, it's even more daunting. But I, I would say that, that my books evolve into the ideas that they were meant to be as I'm writing them. I don't have that idea that say, okay, well, the main driving force behind the narrative of this book is A, is this. That comes about as I'm writing it. And so... You discover it. Yeah, I, I, I discover the, the, the reason why I'm writing the book as I'm writing it. But I come up with an idea that I think is good enough for me to explore something that might be fun. Uh, for me, the reason I, I changed and found the voice and, and realized that I, this connected with and resonated with me more is I had more fun making myself laugh than trying to scare myself. And I thought, well, you know, if I can make other people laugh, 
that would be fun. That would be great. And not everybody shares my sense of humor, but that's okay. So I, I write to make myself laugh because everybody needs to laugh. And so that's probably, if I had to pick one reason why I sit down, it's, it's to do that and, 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 and as I've gone through it to, to possibly explore some other aspects of what it means to be a human being in, in one way, shape, or form while I'm writing it. That sort of ties into how closely linked uh, horror and humor are. I mean, in a way, I mean, it's a different subject, but I've always felt like they were oh, yeah. very close, you know. We had um, Jeremiah. Yeah, I was curious as to whether either of you, well, I know Scott does, but you write in short form, short stories, and how you, if you do, how you approach that differently than you would in a novel. I don't. I, I, I've written a few short stories in the last two or three years. Uh, I've been approached by a couple of anthologies. For the most part, when I write, my ideas want to be bigger. So I, I, I have a hard time writing short stories. I did write some to, to round out the short story collection that I, that I put out this year. Um, it's only as an ebook. It's not as a, you can't get it at the stores. Uh, but I, I had fun coming up with them because they were just, it allowed me to sort of explore this idea and just take it from there. But two of my first three books, Breathers and Lucky Bastard, and my fourth book um, that I'm working on now, actually all came from ideas that originated in short stories I'd written. So my short stories are sometimes breeding grounds for novels. And it's fun to explore something and go back to it and say, well, you know, there's, there's a lot more I could do with this and it would be fun. Especially if you realize, I don't know what I'm going to do now. I'll just go mine these old ideas that I came up with. But uh, I... I I find writing a novel uh, more satisfying because I can do a lot more with it. The short form to me is, is something that I think people have an extreme, uh, uh, people who do it well do it much better than me. I think there's a skill to writing a short story and really making it work. And mine are fun, but I don't think I necessarily, I, 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 not necessarily, I don't do it as well as the people who really know how to do it. So it, it's, it's, and it's not something I've actually sort of worked at crafting. I just do something, again, to, to, to explore an idea and have fun with it and see what happens. I, I agree that it's a, I just want to say briefly, I agree that it's a very different skill. And this is something I didn't understand when I was, you know, um, starting out and trying to learn to be a writer. Because the way they train you uh, as a writer is to have you write short stories. Um, and my gifts do not lie in that direction. I am a crap short story writer. Uh, and yet, you know, I, when, I, when I started out trying to learn to write, I, I, I tried to write Hemingway short stories and Joy short stories, Achiever stories, and Nellis Monroe stories. Uh, I probably have written to date 120 short stories, of which two have been published. Uh, and I spent a very long time flogging these short stories around, and they just weren't that good, and I didn't feel good about them. Uh, and the first time I sat down uh, and, and wrote the first chapter novel, I thought, God, thank God, this is all making sense now. You know, I can breathe. I have some room to run. You know, you know like in, in this opening bit for this notebook, it's introducing, you know, there's the ghost, there's the league, there's plum, there's the wine, there's those funky pencils. You just have 140,000 words to make all that stuff pay off. I can't, I can't work in, those, in these 6,000-word chunks. I'm just really bad at it. And I think it was one reason that I was so frustrated for so long as a writer, is that I, was, I felt like if I couldn't do short stories, there's no way I could, I could tackle a novel. It was completely backwards for me. Please. Um, in, in The Magician's Books, you created such a cohesive and coherent world. Um, and it seems like that's just because you kind of, you had your first principle set, and everything else falls out of that. It's all kind of logical and smart, the way magic works, and at the times the way the rest of the world works. And so, I feel like there's an infinite number of stories to be told in that world because it's so so uh, tight. And so, I mean, I can definitely understand why you want to leave these characters behind at the end of a trilogy. That makes perfect sense. But it seems like it's kind of a shame to just throw away the rest of the world. So I guess I'm saying write some more, please. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely one one thing I have to do before I before I write any. Uh, this one thing I have to write after the Magician's Land, which is non-magicians. I've gone to do it. I just I'm very obsessed with it. Um, I, I guess I won't swear. I'm not going to swear a mighty oath not to come back to the magicians. I think the model is Ursula Le Guin, who you know she let what 20 years go back by. Then she went back to 
earthy when she had something really important and new to say about it. Um, uh, might work that way. I'd also be thrilled to open it up to other. To she other actually writers. did one of the first School for Wizards stories too. Oh yeah, I, think this, was I, I didn't. I I didn't have the idea for this after Harry Potter. I, ha I had it in 1996 after I reread Wizard Wizard uh, Wizard of Earthsea. Yeah. Well, to me, J.K. Rowling didn't have a single original idea. I mean, it's not like you're you're. It's swiping from her that something that she owned, you know. Mm. But um, um, yes, please. Uh, so I've had a question since finishing the magician a long time back. It seems I mean, you've been more curious about it now, hearing about your outlining process, editing process, and hearing from the third book, which is I'm wondering if you know that you're going to write a sequel, or even better, if you know that you've been paid to write the sequel and you get to write it and share it with your readers. Well, yeah, I, I think I had a real, in some ways, a real gift with um, the magicians. I was, I was, um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to say this in a way that's not t non TMI. Um, I was having like a lot of personal difficulties while I was writing the magicians. I was at a sort of a low ebb, and um, you know, I, the idea that I. I mean, I had no idea whether the magicians would be published. Nobody had asked me for it. You know, it wasn't even on spec. It was on. It was just on my hard drive. Uh, and I, I didn't think about writing a sequel um, because it seemed kind of jinxy. And I thought, you know, I'm just not even going to think about what would come after this because I barely have the gumption to, to 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 believe for about five minutes a day that this might be published. The Magician King was it was a different experience. Um, but I, you know, I, my rule for myself was don't don't save anything, don't don't leave, don't keep anything back, um, don't say oh that's great, I'll will keep it for the sequel, mm -hmm. just just put it all in and then know that more stuff will come in the future. Please. Um, I was just wondering, you said at the very beginning that in addition to the Scrabble that you had many other experiments for us. I want to know what they are. <laughs> oh, <Wait>. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know where Scott went. He he ran out. He was weeping because <laughs> you were talking too much. No, no, no. He went. I don't know where he went. But okay. go ahead. Uh, I, I all I meant by that was the experiment of reading reading this aloud, which I know I built it up too much. Didn't I? I oversold it. Um, it felt very experimental to me. Yeah. No, that, that's all I got. I'm afraid. How is the Scrabble going? Who's got the Scrabble? Is it who hasn't who hasn't had the Scrabble? Anybody. All right, so it's sort of got to go over in this direction. He's trying to keep track of his iPad. Is what yes. he's doing. <laughs> uh, please. <laughs> you had a somebody up there had a well here. Let me move to her because we haven't heard from her. I had a question about how Julia got her magic, mm. but I don't want to just spoil anyone in the audience who hasn't read The Magician King. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I can save it after. Well, come, come find me after. Okay, yeah. I can do that. All right. Thank you. you. You had your hand up. Yeah, didn't you? I wasn't sure. I didn't want to take anybody else's spot. Um, a compliment and two questions. A compliment. Um, I, I think it was early in The Magicians where Alice is working on illuminating a marble. Is that right? Mm. Mm -hmm. time she's actually practicing hands on and it's very laborious and she has to concentrate on many failures and so on I thought that was for lack of a better word realistic mm. um, in its depiction of how magic would actually take place could it take place in contradistinction to say some of the magic that takes place in J.K. Rowling's books Wingardia Exploring 
or for lack of a better word, leakage of magic into the ordinary world, the non the non-magical places, would you explore magic more as a spectrum of trait in people? Ever would you consider doing that? Mm. You know, people who have partial degrees of magic or have magical things sort of happen or they do things magically inadvertently, and however might that look? Well, I, I liked this idea. Um, things, are, things are very clean in, in rolling. Uh, and often I feel like my, the, the magician's books get, get read as a, as a critique or a criticism of rolling's work. I'm a huge fan of, uh, of, of, of rolling. Uh, I'm going to not one, but two Harry Potter conventions this summer. <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, what you do when you know when you have it when you're working in the same uh, uh, arena as a titan like Rowling is you just try to find the bit of the arena that is not already occupied by her. <laughs> um, and I love this idea that she her it's a very clean in, in Rowling this division between the Muggles uh, and the Wizards. You have the Squibs, which are already sort of slightly you know in between kind of figures, uh, but it seemed very British. You know this idea that you know you uh, you're either noble or you're not. You know this idea of this. It's very aristocratic, um, and I love this idea. Um, probably a hangover from my uh, my uh, education in literary theory and deconstruction um, in, uh, in in college and grad school, but of of sort of collapsing that opposition and sort of complicating it and having stuff leak, as you say, through the membrane from one side to the other, and just have it be revealed that it's not as simple. Uh, and it's not as neat as uh, as everybody thought it would be. Okay, so you're gonna run with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's you know, there's 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 bits that are you know, there's bits that are not fully explored, and 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 there's still blank spaces on the map, and that's definitely one of them. Second question is, could you give us a glimpse of other universes? Other universes. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know whether to talk about that or not. As I mentioned, there's a book I'm, I want to write after after um, the, uh, after I finish the Magician's Land, and I cheated on the Magicians a bit by writing about a quarter of it already. Uh, uh, I don't know. It's a bit more of a. Hmm, I, I don't know what to say about it. Uh, actually, I have I, I, I have trouble describing it. It's not straight fantasy. Um, it's, set, it's set in the present day in our world, um, and there's plenty of impossible things happening. Uh, but I wouldn't call it necessarily um, uh, fantasy exactly. There are just people with super normal abilities in it. Um, it's a little bit, and I really apologize for saying this, but it's just the truth. It's a little bit Hunger Gamesy. Mm -hmm. uh, I loved the first Hunger Games book, and I and I and I and I and I finished it thinking. Um, Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Uh, you know, I have an idea that's you know that I feel that feels a bit the same as this, um, you know, without without being the same. Well, I found the Hunger Games really frustrating for several reasons, too many to list. I, I had to be you know I had to be sort of warmed up to it. I, I actually got an early copy of the Hunger Games about six months before it was published, um, and you know if I had ever had any doubts about whether I could possibly have a career uh, as a successful publisher, they were, you know, that, that was the end of it. Because I, read, it, I, put, I read, read five pages and I put it down again. Uh, I didn't see anything special in it. Um, I thought it was too dark uh, for, for a young adult. I didn't think kids would read it. Um, and I was so wrong. Uh, but, you know, there's something very, just very powerful about that fantasy that she has. Uh, and the, her willingness to describe uh, Violence in specific and graphic turns. She 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 never cuts. Well, she cuts away, but about ten seconds after you expect her to cut away, it, it's just marvelous and really just disciplined and sort of courageous what she does. Um, I didn't like the second and third ones uh, quite as much, but there's something really real in those books, and I felt envious of it. I wanted it for myself. I wish that I'd written it. Please. I have a question for both of you about titles for your books. Mm. So as Scott mentions um, that he kind of, he's a pantser, which he writes on the seat of his pants, and you're an outliner or planner. Mm -hmm. um, so as far as both of those goes, both of those styles, how do you come up with the titles? Like as, a, as an outliner, do you 
you have the title first and then outline, or at what point do you come up with the title for a book? Um, I'm very proud of this. Uh, I don't know why I'd be proud of this, but the title uh, that I the, the title com- is title comes very first thing, um, b- even before. Uh, I don't know why, but the title the, the title comes and then everything just comes charging after it. Uh, uh, that was true of both the magicians and the magician king, and actually Codex. Um, uh, and I've never I've, I've 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 never ended up changing a title. Uh, it's the first thing that I type in the file, and I've never changed it afterwards. I have a lot of doubts about the magician's land, though. I'm still sort of agonizing about it. Maybe I'll change that one. <laughs> what do you think? <clears throat> well, with my first book, Breathers, which is you know, you read it, it was about zombies. Uh, because it's a, because most novels, or most novels and movies about zombies really aren't about zombies, they're about the people and how they deal with the problems of zombies. But the title's always about zombies. And they're really not about zombies, they're about humans. So since my book is about zombies, I thought the title should be about the humans. It's so, utterly brilliant title. I mean, it's just so it's about breathers. And, you know, and, the and, of the book and I was trying to come up with a title on when that came, I, I I think I was I think I was in Hawaii when I came up with the title. Scuba diving. No. <laughs> no, no, Jaws ruined me. I do not scuba dive. I always wondered because I always heard that, that this is completely off topic, but I always heard that that sharks are not attracted to or are repelled by like tiger stripes and, and, and like that. And I'm like, well why is not every surfboard have tiger stripes on the bottom of it. Would that just not be, you, would be uncool, you know, to have tiger stripes or, or zebra stripes on the bottom? That's what I would do. I'm just not going to get out there anyway. But anyway, so that's why I came up with Breathers. And um, Fate had just made sense because it was, the main character was Fate, and he was in charge of the fate of 83% of the population of the, of the human race. And, and Fate had just seemed to make sense, but it also played into into what happens with him and, and some of the other characters in the book. Lucky Bastard, actually, the original title was just, was just going to be Lucky. And my agent said, what do you think about Lucky Bastard? So I, I, give, I think I thanked her in here for giving the second half of the title to it because it really made it work and it, and it makes a lot of sense. A lot of times Bastard. publishers come up with titles mm. also. But uh, uh, I, re- I remember this story, Tom Mooney, who wrote Easy Travel to Other Planets. He's not really a, he's more of a literary writer than a science fiction writer. But he once said that the title is the target toward which you shoot the arrow of the story. Hmm. And that always worked for me. I always do hmm. a uh, title first. But that's not true of everybody. I think everybody's different that way. And I want to apologize for calling Breathless. 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 Well, maybe you just remember what it was like when you were reading it. <laughs> no, I'm just remembering. I, I just want to say that movies trump novels. <laughs> and I can't help that. That's not my... I, I will say I, I'm writing a... I was asked by my publisher uh, if I was interested in writing a zombie or Christmas-themed zombie novella, if I had an idea for something that they wanted to publish this year. And so I pitched an idea to them and... and uh, as a sequel to Breathers. Um, but I still, we came up with a title to it, and I'm still not happy with the title. It was just a working title. And because I didn't know what it was going to be about. And as I'm writing it, I'm, I'm just looking at the title thinking, the title to me doesn't really reflect what's in here. But I don't know if my publisher is going to agree with me. So we'll see what happens. I, I, I Because it just, the emotional core of the book doesn't seem to, Makes sense with what we came up with as a working title, hmm. uh, but uh, so it, this is one of those few times when I just I didn't have a title for it, and the, and the title that I think it should be may not necessarily be the title that it ends up being. So we'll yeah, see what happens. Too. No, <laughs> no, I think I think I think there is going to be a subtitle where it says a breather's Christmas Carol, but the uh, the the main title right now the working title is I saw zombies eating Santa Claus, uh, but I don't know if that necessarily works for what the the, the book is. I, th- I think it should really be called uh, like uh, Zombie Saint Nick or, or or Zombie Claus or something like that because it really makes more sense. So uh, we'll see what happens. But so this is one of those instances where I, I didn't have the title and, and I'm, you know, I'm three-fourths of the way through it and I'm st- I still am not in love with the title. I think there's actually boilerplate in most contracts that give the final control over title to the publisher. 
Mm. And it's not often exercised, but right. But I think it's there. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, it usually says uh, tentatively titled or yeah. uh, working yeah. title or something like that. They did yeah. add the subtitle to Breathers, yeah. which was a zombie's lament. They wanted to call it um, uh, a romantic zombie something. There was a zombie romance, and, and, and I just thought that's not what the book is about. Right. Even though it is a romantic zombie comedy, that's not the driving force of it. And so I got them to change it to a zombie's lament, which was the short story that it was based on. Right. Well, titles work two ways because they, they can work for the author, mm. but they also, for the publisher, they're about marketing. They're right. not really about the book. They're, they're very the, outward-facing. Yeah, they're about uh, targeting a demographic for the book Absolutely. rather than about helping the writer, you know, but anyway, we all know that. So, um, please. Um, I, I read an article you wrote about uh, reading and walking, about how right. you can't put down a book because you have to. I mean, I've had a lot of really unpleasant, you know, falling on my face, walking my dog because I can put down a book. Um, and I just am kind of shamelessly asking for recommendations. What's the last book you couldn't, both of you couldn't put down? You know, you had to walk and read it at the same time. It was that good. Well, we were talking about this earlier, you know, The Book Thief. The Book Thief, the book thief by Marcus Zusak. It's considered YA, but to me it transcends YA. It's not really YA. It is because it's told from the – it's actually told – narrated by death, but told from the point of view of a, a young girl in, in, uh, in Nazi Germany in, in 1939, I think it's 38 or, or so when it starts. And uh, it's about the power of words. And, it, and it's, uh, I think it's, it's, it's at the top of the list of every, any, any books I would recommend. And I, I haven't had anybody that didn't enjoy it, but that's the one that huh. would be not my top book. Well? Um, I, I, oddly enough, I've, I've read three or four just really knockout books this year, um, which, uh, uh, which surprised me. The first one was John Green, uh, The Fault in Our Stars, which- uh, The what? The Fault in Our Stars. Hmm. Hmm. This, this is an, asto it's an astounding book. I'd never read John Green before this, uh, and this is, you know, I. Yeah, every once in a while you get to the, you feel like you've gotten to the end of fiction, and you're just like, what's the point? You know, <laughs> reading about these things that never happened. You know, you just forget what the point is, and that book just dialed me back in. That was my, I was walking and reading and crying at the same time. Well, what kind of book is this? So? It it is also a young adult book. Yeah. Uh, you guys both read a lot of way. No, I don't need to read nearly as much as, as <laughs> Lev apparently does. I do. I'm really into YA right now. Yeah. I really enjoy it. Huh. Uh, well, it's the hottest market in publishing yeah. now. It is very it hot. Is. And yeah. which, uh, it's the, the only one that's growing. Yeah. Mm. I need to write a YA. <laughs> <laughs> it's about teenagers with cancer, which is the worst pitch uh, you know, ever. And I picked this book up against my better judgment and then couldn't put it down. All right, we'll take a few more. Please. I have two quick questions. Is there a time frame for The Magician's Land to come out? When can we expect that? And then Scott, you already answered this, but uh, what are you working on now? Is it the zombie Christmas girl or is it something else? I'll let you go first, since you were asked first. August 20, what year is it now, 2012? 2013, August 2013, that's the, that's the target. Mm -hmm. I am working on, on this right now. Uh, it's scheduled to be published November 13th, so it's going to be coming out for Christmas. But as soon as I'm done with that, I'm going back to my next book, which is done, but I'm, I was in the middle of, of finishing up edits on it to give it to my agent. I was about two weeks away from, from that, and then they said, well, this takes priority. So uh, I, I'll be working on that, and it's called Big Egos, and it takes place about 15 years in the future. And it's, when people have big egos. Yes. It's about a, it's based on a short story I'd written called uh, If I Only Had a Brain, uh, which is, which then became My Ego is Bigger Than Yours. And it's about a designer drug that allows you to become a dead celebrity or fictional character for four to six hours. So it basically takes role playing games to the next level and it talks about the fascination of our society with thinking that we'd be happier if we were somebody else or wanting to live somebody else's life and explores the idea of what happens when you continue to pretend to be somebody else all the time, what happens to your own identity. What, what celebrity or fictional character do they become? Uh, there's any number of them. 
Uh, None of my, our writers, I'm sure. Oh yeah, actually, I, well, so long as it ends up working out, um, uh, there's a well, there's there's seven chapters in there where the main character is actually narrating as an ego, and, and the first one is Elvis. Uh-huh. Uh huh. He also narrates as James Bond, as Philip Marlowe, as uh, Holden Caulfield. Um, and and so I channel Holden Caulfield in there. Mm-hmm. And he's he says, a dead celebrity. No, he's a fictional character. Oh, you can be either. You can do yeah. fictional characters okay. as well. Uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, Jim Morrison and uh, Stephen King. Stephen King's not dead yet, but I figured in 15 years. <laughs> do you drive an unlicensed van? <laughs> and ho- hopefully, hopefully, you know, they, they won't have uh, any uh, legal problems with this. I figure if South Park can have... Uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg raping Indiana Jones. Uh, you know, I also have a chapter where Indiana Jones is having sex with Mary Magdalene. So, wow, you're really pushing some uh, some boundaries there. Yes, this is why. Okay, so they, you can do whatever you like. No, I don't think so. You had your hand up, please. Oh, uh, the um, I think it'd be you know it'd be kind of fun to be Elvis, uh, the younger Elvis. Uh, not the older one. Um, Jim Morrison you know, would be, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Doors fan, and uh, to be the Lizard King at his, his height would be kind of fun. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I, it, that's, why, that's why I enjoy doing this, because it explores that, that idea of, of the grass is always greener on the other side. So. Please. The question is, if I ask my question very softly, will you be able to answer it? <laughs> no, could you just summarize it? Um, since I'm a, I'm a critic uh, and a novelist, do I have to turn off the critic side of my brain in order to, uh, to write my, my own work? Ah. Did you want, but do you, do you want? Do you want Go to, ahead. I, <laughs> you did, the question's there, so. Um, uh, it's a good question. You, you, you would think I would. Um, for some reason, like, it, the critic naturally recedes. I, I think I said earlier that, I mentioned earlier that, uh, how bad my first drafts are, and they're just epic. They're epically bad. Um, and if, you know, if the, critic were, if the critic were around for that, he would make, you know, he would make the, um, the, the novelist, you know, just uh, whatever, turn in his, his keyboard and never write again. But for some reason, he, he, sort, of, he sort of goes away. Uh, he can be dispelled, and then he sort of gets summoned up again. But it also seems like every writer is a reader, and every reader has a critic side of their brain. You mm-hmm. don't have yeah. to be a critic to have a critic side of your brain. You know, so. Yeah, no, my, my critic side gets paid, but, you know, I think everybody has one. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough for me to, I, I enjoy reading for pleasure, but I, I look at, you know, when I read a book, I think, why do I like the way this is done? Why mm-hmm. do I not like the way this is done? And, and if it's something I can use to improve my own writing, whether or not it's something that works or doesn't work, then I'm going to try to take something away from that. I'm not going to steal, but, you know, all writers are inspired and influenced by by good writing or or even bad writing you see what works and what doesn't work so I can't just read it's difficult for me to just read and not think about the writing and, it's part and, of the pleasure of reading yeah. I think you know it's, sure. um, you know it's the second level of reading but I, most people do that I think and as for the question about whether or not some specific experience influenced uh, the the sensations when you you poach luck. Well, I did a lot of drugs in college, so you know, <laughs> maybe that's it. I, no, I, there's nothing in particular that 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 did this. I've never had a blood transfusion. However, I have donated platelets, and so that actually comes into play here because the way that luck when you poach it is processed from your system as a luck poacher, 
you have to drink coffee or beer or some kind of diuretic beforehand so you can get it out of your body as fast as possible, which is through your urine in a catheter that runs into a centrifuge that separates the luck from the urine. And so then you have the pure luck there. So, so that's the only experience there. But in terms of the actual, I just thought what it would be like if I poached good luck and I had, I had this top grade good luck coming into my body, what, what would that do? And for me, it just, it just expanded the senses, which is a very mushroom experience probably. Um, but, uh, but no, I've never had a blood transfusion, so I didn't have that experience. So we're at the urine. It must be close to now. <laughs> yes, we're at the urine um, and, and doing drugs <laughs> in college. So. But um, yes, please. Uh, well, I guess there's, there's two signs to it. Um, uh, I'm, I've always been very interested in, in, in fan fiction. Uh, reading it and writing it, uh, but also um, uh, uh, just, you know, just the fact of it, this idea that, that, that people uh, who consume media aren't passive, that they can, can speak back to uh, and, 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 you know, and contribute to these things that they love so much in an active way. So I've always, uh, I've always uh, loved fan fiction, um, and I love, what, I, I love the magician's fan fiction that out, that's out there. There isn't that much of it. Um, but I've often thought about uh, uh, um, setting up some, trying to set up some sort of uh, wiki format uh, where people could sort of play in the world and, 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 and flesh it out. Um, and the other side of it, is uh, um, uh, we've been trying to develop a, t a TV show based on the magicians, uh, an hour-long drama, and uh, that would um, you know it, it it's very it would be very different from a movie. This would be an opportunity to really sit in the world and um, and uh, just stop and look around at things that you see only in passing in the books, and you know make whole stories about them. Uh, so that's. Very fun and exciting, and also incredibly terrifying. But uh, uh, it might turn out to be worth doing. So now it's a world. When we met, it was a universe. Yes, it's getting smaller. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's going to be a county pretty soon. <laughs> um, I wanted to say one thing. Uh, when they were, from my point of view, the the thing about uh, writers who outline and writers who don't mm. seems like this big difference. But actually, I don't think it is. I think I think as Lev was talking about the the outline is a sort of a talisman, you mm. know. And I think you I think that's not a to me that's not a huge difference in how writers work because you know I don't think of that as a dividing line. Uh, that's all, you know. And the other thing I want to say was the talking about writing a thousand words a day. Of course, this goes back to Fred Pohl, who wrote uh, A Thousand a Day, I think, and, and of course, um, Trollope, who wrote for, you know, trying to, I think it's partly, it has to do with work, but there's also a thing, I think, in every writer, I've, I see this in myself, where sometimes you just get, you do this, you want to make it seem like a job. <laughs> you know, you want to make it, you want to regularize it in yeah. some way. And because it, there seems to be so much that you're not in control of. And I remember this story about John Cheever. Uh, and Cheever lived in an apartment in New York. And he would get up in the morning and he'd put on a coat and tie. And he'd go down to the basement in the apartment, down to the coal. This one, they all were heated with coal down the coal bins. And he had a little desk. And he'd take off his tie, and he'd hang it over the back of his chair, and he'd take off his coat, and he'd hang it over the back of the chair. He'd write all day, and then he'd get dressed again, and he'd get on the elevator and go home because it helped him to feel like it was a 9-to-5 job. Mm. You know? And I think in every writer there's this thing, you want to somehow make it easier. <laughs> you know? Well, it, it's, sometimes it's difficult to have the structure because yeah. 
there's nobody there making you accountable except you, and it's easy to screw around. I mean, sometimes, sometimes it seemed like I was more productive on a regular basis when I had a day job. And when oh, I didn't yeah. have that day job, you know, it could be 12, 1, 2 o'clock in the, you know, 2 in the afternoon, all of a sudden you realize, I haven't done a damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> I've, been, I've been screwing around all day. Yeah. And, and those days, and, and, and if, you, if you're not careful, those days can pile up. You know, and maybe you've gone out and you've taken a bike ride and you've gone out and had lunch with a friend and whatever. But eventually you realize after doing this for a month or two that you're feeling antsy because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And what I'm supposed to be doing is writing. And I'm happier when I write. I'm a happier person. I don't get as, as frustrated with things. I, I don't take things as seriously because I'm doing something that matters to me. You know, and everybody needs to be able to do something that matters to them. And, and to me, writing matters to me. And, and, and so getting some words down each day, if it's 1,000, if it's 500, whatever it is, at least if I, I sat there and, and did my work, it does. It makes me feel like I'm, I'm, I'm doing something for me. And then I can go out and play. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's the structure I can understand putting on the coat and going down or people <laughs> who go to cafes because it takes you. There's, oddly enough, there's less distraction in a cafe than there is in, in your home because right. it's easy. It's like, oh, there's my cat, my cat. Oh, you want to eat something? Okay, I'll go feed you or <laughs> I'll go down and sit or I'll go on this. I'm much more likely to go on the Internet if I'm at home. You know, and, and if I'm at a cafe, you know, I can sit there and write for three hours and sometimes be much more productive than I can in four or five hours at home. So, so it, it does. It, taking you out of your element to go someplace different helps to jumpstart that idea of, of structure. Well, I just like to me, there's nothing more fun than being with writers to whom writing matters and with readers to whom reading matters and spend a great evening. And thank you all for coming, and thank you guys for Thanks. reading and discussing the process. Thank you. So. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.